That's just been great. And just before I uh, get underway, I promised my friend Mark Docking, who's delivered at least two, if not three, of my children into this world. So when she asks me stuff, I generally say, okay. <laughs> Last night I was in Melbourne at a U2 concert and I got to see one of the world's greatest social justice evangelists, if you like. And last night I saw 40,000, possibly 50,000 people all stand in unison and raise their hands in the air and say no to things like poverty, no to things like injustice and no, thi no to things like uh, the deprivation of human rights. Pagans, atheists, um, Christians, Muslims. There would have been a variety of people in the audience, but I reckon all of them. There wasn't a person there that wasn't going, yes, Bono. Yes, let's make poverty history and all the things that go along with it. Marg is part of our, um, our mission ministry team here, and uh, she's been very involved in a... In a, in a project, uh, Corrigotcho is... Are you here, Mark? I don't need to say this if you're not here. <laughs> no, I do. Corrigotcho latrines. And over there, there is people just eating and drinking and, and, and living in human effluent. That's where they spend their lives, just living in these conditions. You know, we feed our pets better than what these people get fed. They scavenge around in these just disgusting conditions to live. This is a calendar. It's hideously overpriced. It's worth $12. But that's the whole point. The money that you spend on this calendar, its value doesn't lie in what you get inside. The dates and things. The value of the money when you spend it on this calendar is going to go towards the Corrigocho Slum Project and helping these people kind of get out of these conditions. If you want to know more about it, you talk to our Mission Watch team, Die Wicks. Um, what's the name of that chick that delivered my kids? Um, Mark Docking. Well, you go out and you have a look at the photos there. But you know what? Before you go and you think about the $4 cappuccino you're going to buy after church tonight, perhaps you might want to even get together with some friends and just buy one of these. And I don't care if you go and throw it in the bin. The money's going towards a great cause. We, uh, we come together here and we say we serve, you know, we want to worship God. And one of, one of God's primary concerns is that human beings created in his image just shouldn't be living like that. But tonight we better get back to Jonah. Perhaps that could have been the message, hey? And, uh, George, is this all right or do you want me to... You just throw something at me, mate. We've been going through Jonah, a little mini-series, and we're, we're into chapter to two now, and it's... Uh, I'll read it out to you. Yep, grab your Bibles. I love the sound of that. Here we go. This is, this is Jonah praying. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress... I called to the Lord, and he answered me. 
From the depths of the grave, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas. And the currents swirled about me. And the wa- your waves and breakers, they swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me and the deep surrounded me. Seaweed wrapped around my head to the roots of the mountains. I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And Lord, my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. Here's an interesting little bit in in the book of Jonah. Here's here's Jonah speaking, conveying about a a near-death experience that he's had. And it's always good to hear these stories from the person who's experienced them. I myself have had a few near-death experiences and I've noticed a couple of things about them. They've always had two things in common. They've had Aaron Kennedy and they've had water. (laughs) And uh, he's a good friend of mine. And on one particular occasion, I was up up the middle river with Aaron and uh, I think we were trying to impress some girls that are now wives. And we were on a barbecue and uh, we decided we were going to go tubing down the middle river, which seemed to me like a pretty harmless proposition. So I jumped on this tube with Aaron and off we went. And as we were kind of mindlessly floating down the river, looking at uh, potentially good fishing spots, I, being the sort of sensible one of the, the entity, the, the trip, noticed that we'd, we were heading, we picked up speed and we were heading towards a big sweeping bend in the river. And this sweeping bend just disappeared under some willow trees. And uh, there was just no way of avoiding it. We were going to crash into these willow trees. And uh, as we approached and as we crashed into it, Aaron, for some strange reason, found this pretty amusing. And he's laughing and he's got his hands in the air trying to dodge the trees and he fell off the tube and into the water and he just kind of disappeared before my eyes into the deep, dark, black water of the Mitter River. And this kind of rendered the tube sort of... Um, it, it couldn't balance. And I just went, flip, off the other side too. And I disappeared into the deep, dark waters of the Middle River. And I remember uh, sort of thinking, what's going on? And I, and I tried to get up and, uh, and the branches were hanging down in the, in the river and I'm, and I'm sort of thinking, what have I got to do? What have I got to do? And I'm fighting and the water's just washing over me. I can feel myself dragging along the bank going down. And the branches were all in the water and it's... it's I spoke to Aaron about it later and we were both doing the same thing. We were trying to fight our way out of these branches that were hanging down and we couldn't get out. And then after, I don't know how long, geez, it felt like a long time, I felt, I felt myself going light and really felt quite relaxed. And I knew that this could possibly be it. And just as I was thinking that, I bobbed out of the water and up. 
And there, just enough time, I saw Aaron kind of clinging to a branch like a wet cat, looking pretty concerned about the situation. And then some of the most insightful words he's ever spoken to me came out of his mouth. He said, grab on to something, cling on to something. And that's all I heard. And I went back down under again. And I thought to myself, no kidding. <laughs> what do you think I'm trying to do here? And I remember thinking, great. The last thing I'm going to remember, the last image I've got in my head is Aaron. He's dumb, smug, grim, cling on to something. And I just threw my arms up in the air and grabbed. And the next thing I knew, I was the second cat <laughs> up in the tree. And Aaron and I staring at each other, just going, we made it. Don't know how it all happened. It's a bit of a blur, but it was a near-death experience that I'd had. And they're always good to hear from the people that were there when, they, when they're retold. They never have the same clarity or, or sort of um, imagery when somebody else tells them secondhand. And that's what's going on here in, in this passage here uh, in Jonah as he thinks about what's happened. There's a switch in style, in literacy style. It's gone now and it's speaking in the first person. As Jonah kind of recalls or the writer recalls the experience that Jonah had when he was thrown or cast, or found himself abandoned in the ocean. And no doubt that he's lost for words on how to describe this horrific ordeal. So the writer calls on the Psalms. There's at least a dozen Psalms kind of quoted in this passage, just kind of trying to describe the isolation and the abandonment. And then at the eventual kind of joy that Jonah feels when he's eventually saved. So as we work through the passage, I've kind of tried to divide it up into three things, three S's I've, I've got to help us try and remember what's going on. The first one is separation, obviously. How Jonah felt separated. How he got there was divine judgment for his actions, circumstantial situations. The second S, if you're taking notes, is supplication. That's just a, a big word for prayer, basically. And the third S is salvation. Sort of deliverance from the situation. You know, Jonah, as we heard last week, or we read in the first chapter, wished to escape God's call, to flee his presence. Jonah can't reconcile his understanding of God. Or the way he thinks God should operate. God kind of presents himself in a new challenging way. To take a message of grace to a group of people who Jonah just despises and doesn't think that they deserve such a gift. So rather than kind of stop and, and question this, even just ask why, why, why would you want me to do that God? Jonah's reaction to this request is just to ignore it. You don't hear Jonah speak. He just gets up and runs and tries to flee from the presence of the Lord. And this sort of further exposes Jonah's, I don't know, maybe small understanding of God, that he thinks that he could get out of God's presence. Perhaps he thinks that God is just confined 
to Palestine, to, to, to Israel, to, to his temple. You know, the prophet Amos, one of Jonah's contemporaries, had declared this in Amos chapter 9, verse 2 to 4. This is God speaking through his prophet. He says, and he's talking about the Edomites and his judgment coming against them. And he says, though they dig down to the land of Sheol, and that's the, the place of the dead, from there my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide at the summit of Mount Carmel, I will search them out and I will take them from there. And though they conceal themselves in the floor of the sea, from there I will command my serpent to bite them. There's nowhere you can go. What's Jonah thinking? You can't get away from the presence of God. But now, in verse 4, it appears that Jonah's just done exactly that. Or at least in his mind, Jonah's quest has met with some success. In verse 4a, he describes how he has been banished from God's sight. But instead of the peace of mind, perhaps, that Jonah thought this would bring, he now finds himself in a situation of indescribable anguish, at which he is a loss of words to describe. And, he, and as I've said, he calls on, on his memory of the Psalms as he's rewriting this and retelling this to assist him in painting a picture of, of the distress that he felt. Now, when we were going down to the U2 concert, have I mentioned that? Um, I had in the car with me some Dave and Scott and, and I was talking to them about you know, what was going on in this and I said, you know, this word distress, the image here that's being pictured, it's, uh, you know, Jeremiah uses the same word in Jeremiah 49, 22 and he's talking about, and he says, um, you know, the fear, the distress that they feel will be like that of a woman giving birth. You know, the, 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 the anguish that she goes through. I was just kind of trying to say, this is, this is how he felt. And the, Dave kind of piped up and he said, you know, Mason, that is scriptural evidence that men can understand completely what a woman goes through in childbirth. <laughs> this myth that they can't has now been busted. And here it is in the Bible. I said, Dave... That is a long bow to draw. <laughs> I don't think that's what it's saying at all, mate. But hey, if you want to orate that from the front of the church and all the women in the church hear you, that's fine with you. <laughs> I actually think it's more to do about the fact that the situation's beyond his control. It's going to happen anyway and there's nothing he can do about it. And the anguish that he feels about this. <clears throat> it's not so hard for us to kind of picture this, is it? Or even to, to, um, to relate to Jonah. And we run sometimes from situations. We might even run, those of us who are Christians, from God. And, and we find ourselves cut off, banished, if you like, from his presence. Perhaps not through our own direct actions like Jonah, Maybe we are more like, I say, Job, another character in the Old Testament, who is described by God as having no equal on earth for his righteousness in Job 2.3. Yet Job finds himself physically ill, inflicted with like ulcers and sores. 
It's just emotionally ruptured. His entire family has been lost. Uh, All except his wife, who, who he probably wishes had gone to actually because she hasn't got anything good to say later on. But he can't think of any good reason why he's like this. He's done nothing wrong. He can't reconcile why he would feel so abandoned by God. There's some of us who would feel that. I've no doubt. Why are you so off? Why are you so far away from me, God? What have I done? Or maybe like another figure in the Old Testament, there's a guy, King Manasseh. You find him in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. This guy is a king of Judah, supposed to be in the line of David, who was, you know, God's ideal king on how to run things under his, um, under his law. But Manasseh operates in a corrupt fashion. He lives in contempt of God and just complete disregard for him. Doesn't want to know about him. In fact, his life is so wicked that it influences the whole of Judah and the whole lifestyle becomes corrupt and God's judgment comes against the whole nation. And then the king is dragged away, taken prisoner by the Assyrians with like a hook and a ring in his nose. And then we hear him say, he cries out, in my distress, he's alone now. His life of living in contempt of God, he finds himself completely alone. Jonah now finds himself alone in a raging sea. Verses 3 to 6 are a description of the depth of the abandonment and isolation that Jonah feels. He's been cast into the very heart of the sea. The water encompasses him to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me with weeds. They wrapped around my head. Can anybody kind of empathise with this, just pictorially, how isolated and alone and how completely out of control Jonah's feeling? But all the time, perhaps even for us, Jonah knows... It's just a, we get a hint of it in verse 4 where he says, I will look again at your temple. But all the time, perhaps when we're in these situations, there's a still, maybe small voice calling out to us, cling on to me. For me in the river, it was a rather loud, panicking voice. Cling on to something. But in these situations, God pursues us. As the chapter presses on, Jonah's situation sinks lower and lower till finally in verse 6 he describes his situation as hopeless. He's reached the very bottom of life. It is here that the psalm that he's writing and composing reaches its dramatic climax. Jonah is at death's door. And again, powerful images from the psalms are applied from Psalm 69, from Psalm 18, from Psalm 116. As he says, I descended to the roots of the mountains And he says, the earth with its bars was around me forever. Jonah thinks he is gone. Jonah thinks he is dead. But it is at this moment, at the greatest darkness and despair, when there's nothing Jonah can do for himself, he can't humanly do anymore, and there's no way that anyone else can help him from his bind. It is just then that God breaks into the situation. And he is swallowed by an enormous fish. 
You know, these, these images that we have, you know, of Jonah kind of jumping out of the boat and a big fish just popping up and swallowing him before he even has time to get his clothes wet, are just like a Walt Disney sanitization of what's really going on. Jonah's distress is real. And some of us might say that this is out of the frying pan and into the fire. He's in a no better place. He's now about to be dissolved inside a fish. Jonah's response is clear in verse 6b. He says, in almost unexpected exclamation, Jonah says, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God, while my life was ebbing away. As the horrific reality dawns on Jonah, he is at the very gates of death itself, Sheol, the land of the dead. One could not find themselves, kind of pictorially speaking, any further away from God's presence. If Jonah wanted to get away from God, he's now done it. Yet a startling reality is exposed to Jonah. Even though he is now entombed in the belly of a great big fish, kind of surrounded by decomposing sea matter, and I just imagine him just to be almost unconscious, just clinging on to life. It's so dark in there that you don't see things, you can only feel their presence. Life can get like this when the darkness closes in on us about things. You know, even in this isolation, God hears Jonah's prayer. It would appear that God is more ready to hear our cries for help than we are to cry them. You know, we, we are never too far away from God to call out to him. Jonah's isolation, his situation was hopeless. Perhaps we have experienced this, being out of fellowship with God, feeling isolated, separated from his presence. Perhaps we've never even known God. We've been separated from him our whole lives. We don't even know what it's like to know God. The next section of this passage addresses action that needs to be taken. Supplication, prayer. The Psalms say things like, Oh Lord, you brought me up from the grave. You spared me from going down to the pit. Psalm 31 and 22 says, As for me, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard my voice, the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. Here's the amazing thing. The wonder of what's going on. In Jonah's place of death now becomes a place of deliverance. He expected to die. And in his distress, his prayer is heard by God, who is not as Jonah pictured him sitting up in his temple away and aloof from the situation, but is right there with him. Jonah knows he doesn't deserve God's mercy He's been disobedient. He's defied God. And now he finds himself in, in his actions' ultimate conclusion. Yet, Jonah humbles himself to acknowledge that without God, he is without hope. And Paul Coleman writes a song in which he describes the isolation and being separated from God 
as not even being able to know himself. He says, I don't know myself without you. It's a horrible thing to not be in fellowship with God. Our three friends that we spoke of earlier, Job and Manasseh and obviously Jonah, were like that. Job is a guy who's done nothing wrong. But what's happening to him in his environment, he just can't reconcile. All these things are happening to him. He's lost his whole family. He's, he's been afflicted physically. And everybody says, you must have done something wrong, Job, for this to happen. But Job knows in his heart that he's done nothing wrong. Some of us are like Job. We haven't done anything to deserve what's going on. We love God. Yet things have happened in our life and we just feel like God has abandoned us. Instead of just shutting down and not doing it and doing nothing about it, Job opens up and he, and he cries out to the Lord. 37 chapters of dialogue go by as Job tries to wrestle with what's going on. And here's the key. He opened dialogue with God. He prayed to him. He never ever speaks disparagingly or, or bad about God, accusing him of being a bad God for this situation. He just cries out and wants to know why. Tell me why. Manasseh, this king that sent Judah into irreconcilable uh, condemnation, finds himself in an Assyrian prison and he says in his distress, he sought God. He humbled himself before God. Someone who'd never really had any time for God at all, now at some point in his life, turns and says, I humble myself before you. I want you to reveal yourself to me. God Here's this earnest prayer from Manasseh, this wicked, evil king. And it says he brought him back. And he took him back to Jerusalem. And then it says, you know, Manasseh was reconciled with God. Jonah calls out to God. And God hears him, even though he's been disobedient, even though he's defied God and run away. From inside the whale he prayed and in his distress he called to the Lord and the Lord answered him from the depths of the grave. He heard his prayer. You want to know something? No matter where you've run, and you don't have to actually physically move, you can be sitting right in front of me tonight. And no matter where you've run in your heart away from the Lord, maybe perhaps a bit like Jonah, maybe avoiding a task. Maybe you know God's got something for you to do and you just think, I don't want to do it. When we were dri- Here's irony for you. When we were driving down to, to Melbourne, I was sitting in the car stressing about this message and about Jonah and how I could get my head around it. And I was thinking, Dave, let's have a car accident. That way I don't have to preach this message. Or our whole family's had the gastro um, that bug thing virus and I haven't had it and I thought perhaps I could get it. <coughs> Here I am feeling quite annoyed about a prophet who in his stupidity denied God's will in his life and I'm praying 
for some miracle not to have to um, deliver this message because I was worried about it. There's an irony in there. And maybe, maybe we're like, we're, we're like uh, Job. And we just don't understand what's going on. We can't reconcile the incongruencies of life, you know, the things that just don't make sense. Job cries out to God and he talks to him and he's reconciled and God reconciles him at the end of the book. Prayer, supplication to God is the way of coming back into fellowship with him. Manasseh, I've mentioned Manasseh. Reconcile back to God, even though he lived in contempt of him. He never, ever, ever even wanted him in his life. So we see through these stories that there's no distance too great that God cannot close. There's no sin too great that God cannot forgive. There's none, despite what anyone might tell you. There's nothing God can't forgive until you're dead. You still have the opportunity to seek God. And there's no hurt that he can't heal. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. There's no disobedience he can't reconcile as we've seen in Jonah. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme, New Testament application here, and he applies it to Jesus and he says this, and he's speaking to Christians here. In Romans 8, 35, 39, he says, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword. Obviously, kind of paraphrasing. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through Jesus. This is the key to it. This crying out, this reliance on something greater than ourselves. Who has loved us? Paul is convinced there is, that there is neither death nor life, angels or demons. There's nothing, nothing, nothing on this planet that can separate us from the love of Christ. The only thing that can really stop it is us. If we don't want to cry out, if we don't want to pray, if we don't want to reach out and cling on to it. Supplication. You know, until you kind of humble yourself before God and turn, him in, turn to him in prayer, you're sort of fighting in your own efforts. Pray to God in times of need. We don't have to fear what God's going to say. We don't have to fear God's response. He is actually waiting for you to cry out to him. You know, he sort of does care, but it's not going to stop him. What you've done, nothing as long as you turn to him humbly, can stop him from hearing your prayer. No matter the situation, his love and grace and mercy go beyond human failure. Supplication. Prayer. Pray, pray to God. The final point is salvation. Deliverance, if you like. Finally, we see Jonah's deliverance. God speaks to the fish. 
doesn't speak to Jonah. And the fish, even a dumb fish knows to obey God. You know, right throughout the book of Jonah, we constantly see God in complete control. He sends and calls off a storm. He commands a fish and it obeys him. Grab that bloke over there, spit him up out over there. He brings repentance to Nineveh. He commands a plant to grow and it does. And then he says to a worm, destroy that plant. He sends a wind to harass Jonah. You know, in the book of Jonah, there's so many great things going on that we can get distracted by and we can focus on the things. These red herrings, as I've called them in my title. It's like that in life too. We need to look past the situations, if you like, and look towards the God who rests behind them all. There's nothing that Jonah could do to bring about his salvation. He had to surrender his situation to God. Jonah finally gets something right when he exclaims, salvation comes from the Lord. God hears his prayer. His, his honest prayers there, he will make good what he has said he will do. He offers sacrifices to to God and God hears it even down in the belly of a whale Jonah has finally submitted to God's will over him and Jonah's prayers are met by God addressing a fish to, to come and eventually deliver him even though like the psalmist Jonah had made his bed in Sheol God in, his, in a great act of mercy has preserved him through a miraculous act. You know, Jonah, though, still has unresolved things. He still has protest towards God's operations. But he stops running in his heart and humbles himself and prays to God. And God hears that prayer despite Jonah's protests that still exist and rescues him. Salvation. This grace and mercy just doesn't just extend to great Bible figures like Jonah, like uh, Job, even King Manasseh. This grace exists for us. For Jonah, salvation in a sense came through a, a fish, if you like, that, that brought him up from death and, and eventually got him back to dry land. For us, Though our salvation lies in Jesus Christ. And Romans 5.8 says something quite amazing. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, you don't have to have everything packed away in a box and tidied up and, and sorted out before you can come and approach God. If you don't even know God, you don't have to feel like you've got to get your life right in order to approach him. You know, if you're a, a Christian and uh, you're thinking, oh, geez, I've got, to, I've got to do at least two weeks of reading my Bible and doing things right before I can start praying to God again, it's just false thinking. God is waiting for you to stop running, turn right then and there and call out to him. Salvation and deliverance is on offer to anyone who turns to Christ in humble surrender. 
Jonah acknowledges this while he's still in the whale, in the fish. He's not out of danger, but he knows he is in God's care. All of us can feel separation, no matter where we stand in relation to God. You don't have to be a bad person to feel isolated from God sometimes. We can all experience it. But it's what we do in response to that. It's whether we take that next step of supplication and prayer and turning back to God. God is faithful as he was to Jonah to bring deliverance, salvation. Jonah's psalm of giving thanks demonstrates the power of praise in any circumstances for those who turn to God. Jonah had not resolved all attentions in his life. He was still at odds with God in some sense, yet God worked salvation in his life. Are you, maybe tonight, running from God in disobedience? Yeah, there's no question about Jonah's love for God. Maybe there's no question about your love for God. There's something that you kind of just, you just don't want to deal with. Don't make me do that, Lord. Don't make me go at the back and buy a $12 calendar. Or maybe, you know, you just don't understand what's going on, why you feel isolated. Perhaps, you know, they talk about seasons and people go through winters where they just don't feel God's presence. And there's no reason for it and you don't understand it. Maybe it's through a death. Maybe it's through loss of some description. I don't know. But there's no sense in just shutting down. Cry out. Pray to God. Job. God is not afraid of honest, open dialogue. You can pour your heart out to him. He's not going to sit there and smack you over the head and say, don't question me, mate. Well, perhaps you've been rejecting God's claims on you and you've just not wanted to know about him. This psalm, this, this passage shows us that there's nowhere or nothing you can do, nowhere you can go, that you cannot call out to God, that you cannot stop and turn to him and he promises to listen. You know, when I was sinking in that river, I just... I reached up and grabbed something. And it, it's a thought. This is not literal. When you reach up and grab something, like I did, it's just kind of pictorial. I grabbed on to something. Now, I don't feel very comfortable standing here like this. I don't even know why I'm doing it. I'm exposed. I'm vulnerable. Everything about me is open. I've got no defence anymore. But this is exactly where God wants you. No matter where you are in life. Open. Vulnerable. Turning to him. No longer in your own strength. No longer giving excuses. But lifting your hands up and saying, and God, I've been running. And I've been 
disobedient, but now I just want to stop. I just want to say, take hold of my hands and take hold of my life. And I call out to you. I say, I want to come back into fellowship with your will. Well, God, I don't understand what's going on. I don't quite get all that's happening to me. I don't even know why this is happening, but I know you're sovereign. I just want to hold on to you. Grab my hands. God's crying. Cling on to me. Hold on to me. Oh God, I've been living life my own way. I had nothing to do with you. Yet I've heard about you. But I'm so defensive and I don't want to open myself up. I'm afraid. Courage. Take, take the challenge. Open yourself up to God. Say something as simple as, well, just reveal yourself to me. If you're there. This is it. This is sort of where it's at. There's nowhere you can go. There's nothing you can do. There's no situation too great for God to deal, but you just have to reach. Pray, supplication. Turn to Him. I feel like a fool standing here like this. And we can feel like a fool turning to God. But His promise is that it will grab hold of our hands if we turn to Him in humble submission. Lord, I've lived my life my own way. And even as a Christian, I've had pride and I've not wanted to do the things you've wanted me to do. And Lord, I just want to say, forgive me of these things. Lord, as we sit here and we think about our lives before you, we want to acknowledge that you are in sovereign control. And if we've been running from you, Lord, we want to say we want to stop. We want to reach out and we want to grab onto you. Lord, if we've been questioning you and if we've not been understanding what's going on, we just want to stop and say, we don't get it. We don't understand it, but we're going to trust. And I'm not going to shut down. I'm going to continue praying and I'm going to continue the dialogue. And Lord, maybe there's some of us who don't know you at all. Would give us courage to stand open. And to just maybe inquire upon you. Maybe ask a friend about it. Maybe even just pray to God and say, God, reveal yourself to me. Lord, thank you that salvation comes through you. Thank you that there's nothing that can separate us from us if we turn to you. How wide is your love? How deep is your love? Where can I go, Lord, that I can get away from you? Nowhere. Father, this is the greatest comfort.